Back in 2015, I quit my job in the public mental health system and decided to go out on my own and work with people in private practice on the outside. Here's why. Hi, I'm Jasmine Russell, and this is Depth Work, a holistic mental health podcast. This is a space for those who love to dive into the underbelly, to revel in the mystery, question assumptions about what's normal, play in the both and, and honor the wide range of human emotion. As a complex trauma survivor, holistic counselor, and co-founder of a mental health training institute, I've learned that there is immense wisdom in our pain, and that what we call crazy is just what we are not yet willing to understand and explore. I'm so glad that you're here, so let's dive in. It is just now starting to be discovered in public discourse the ways in which mental health workers, social workers of all kinds are put under immense strain and pressure in a way that is completely unsustainable for our system. We've had many conversations around um, police brutality and the ways in which people who are in mental health crises need alternative support options. And yet so much of this burden has been placed on social workers and other mental health crisis counselors in a way that really cannot be sustained. I know this to be true because I used to work in a crisis program in the public mental health system in New York State. This was actually my first job immediately out of college. I had applied to many different jobs in the mental health system, and I feel both very lucky, but also um, it was quite a complex experience for me. I knew in so many ways I had wonderful training and also my own lived experience, enough to know that when I was going into this job as a young, bright-eyed, bushy-tailed, new junior clinician, that... um, There were a lot of things in the mental health system that I would find problematic. A lot of my training, thankfully, was actually fairly radical enough that I was able to critique a lot of aspects of psychology and mental health. And yet, I don't think I was quite prepared for the reality of what I did see. In my job, it was my job to go into people's homes. It was home-based crisis, so I was seeing people either that had, um, they were children and families who had made a call to a crisis center or a mobile crisis team. Either they were coming out of the inpatient unit and wanted some extra intensive support, or they were attempting to keep a family member, usually a child, out of the mental health system or out of the hospital. So those are the types of calls that we would get. Very often dealing with things that get labeled as psychosis, sometimes people that were wanting to end their life or struggling with suicidality, a lot of really complex issues. And it was my job and that of my colleagues to go into people's homes, work with them on a short-term basis, usually one to two months, but intensively we'd meet with them about two or three times a week We would often do a psychosocial assessment. That's what we would start with, figure out what's going on in the family's life, uh, figure out what their treatment would look like. And it was our job to quote unquote, psychoeducate them in their mental illness. I had many issues with this term psychoeducate and felt it felt complicated to me to walk into people's lives and homes and essentially give them labels for what was going on with them when I truly believed that people are the experts on their own lives and the things that we label as 
mental health disorders are so much more complex than any kind of biological, biomedical, or chemical disorder. Often, what I would see, as you could imagine, are families that are struggling with things like intense trauma, often historical or intergenerational trauma, racism, systemic oppression. A lot of them were refugees or immigrants or people that hadn't seen their families in quite a long time, people that were struggling to adjust to a system or a space that wasn't built or made for them, people that were dealing with many different intersecting systems at once. So often these were kids who were involved in the juvenile justice system or incarcerated or had parents who were incarcerated or were dealing with education issues. What I saw more often than not is that the things that we would label as mental health concerns or mental illness were often ways that we covered up or invisibilized the roots of people's pain and suffering. This job included a lot of case management, so working with many different people, many different specialists, people in the education system or other areas of people's lives that we were trying to connect them to or refer them to. However, there was a specific moment where I really realized the weight of this. And it was with a client who was about 13 or 14. She had been writing things in her notebook that her educators and her principal had seen as problematic. So they gave me a call and let me know that she hadn't been doing her homework and that she seemed really distressed and that I needed to speak with her because she wrote some things in her notebook saying that she didn't want to live anymore. And to me, this made a lot of sense. She was one of four kids, had siblings that had been hospitalized for unimaginable periods of time. She hadn't seen them in a long time. She was being raised by a single mom who was really struggling to just keep the whole family afloat. And there were so many ways that she needed our support. And when I spoke with her, it became really clear to me that she was not attempting or even desiring to make any attempt to end her life at all. She really was just trying to express that something, anything, needed to change. She didn't want to be living the life that she was living anymore. And it made sense. However, when I called my supervisor, my supervisor informed me that I needed to tell her mother to take her directly to the inpatient unit. I pushed back, but of course the decision wasn't fully up to me. And I asked if there was any other way that we could provide what we're here to provide, which is a crisis service. But it struck me in that moment that, at least in the United States, we truly don't have real crisis services. The only true crisis service that we tend to rely on over and over again is institutionalization or hospitalization, taking someone to the inpatient unit. If we were truly a crisis program, I felt that there must be some way that we could come together, me or many of her providers, to figure out a solution for how to really meet some of her and her family's needs in this moment. When I met with her after she came back from the inpatient unit, luckily she wasn't hospitalized and she was sent home. And I asked her what had happened and she mentioned that the doctor had said she has major depressive disorder. He gave her medication. 
and told her that it would be best, since she wasn't high risk, as we like to say, that it would be best to just fake it till you make it. See if you can try to be happy, take the medication, and see what comes of it. I asked her what she thought about that, and she said, that sounds impossible. This moment in particular was a moment where an anger and a passion really took hold in me. Not at the doctor or any of her other providers, not at my supervisor or any of my colleagues. I understand that all of us are burnt out, overworked, and don't really know or have very many other options in that moment. We're working within a system that is unsustainable for us as well. But where the anger was really directed was at a system that seemed to give us not very many choices when it comes to truly working with, looking at, and attempting to mitigate some of the roots of the pain and the suffering that people were feeling. It became clear to me in that moment that so many people, not everyone, of course, some people um, are hospitalized or institutionalized and, and are grateful for it or do come out of it feeling as if they were helped or supported in a way that made sense to them. But enough people feel traumatized or re-traumatized by the system that it absolutely needs to change. And for me, what I walked away with in that moment was feeling completely complicit in a system that often does more harm than good. For me, that was one of the biggest things that deteriorated my own mental health was feeling as if I was part of just another arm of the system, a gatekeeper to the system, that I was essentially part of a system that was creating harm re-traumatizing people, but ultimately I wasn't able to do the kind of supportive work that I genuinely felt like was needed or that I wanted to be part of. So I made a transition to peer counseling or peer work. I decided that being in this hierarchical role really didn't sit well with me. I kept thinking, who am I to quote unquote psychoeducate people on their mental health concerns? Who am I to come in here and give treatment recommendations or try to help people grapple with their diagnosis? Really what I felt people needed was something far deeper than that. And especially when it came to treatment, I was sitting in roundtable discussions with my colleagues hearing about six-year-olds who were on more kinds of medication than years old they were. I was seeing racism play out through diagnoses, how only certain people with certain privileges receive diagnoses that have lighter, more supportive treatment models. For example, I used to notice that, especially when it came to young boys, there's a diagnosis, several diagnoses that are slightly different, but virtually indistinguishable when it comes to its manifestation. It's pretty common for young boys to be diagnosed with either ADHD or ODD. ADHD is Attention Deficit Hyperactivity Disorder, and ODD is Oppositional Defiant Disorder. Both of them are pretty heavily characterized by someone often getting up out of their seat, um, being unfocused or feeling uh, hyper, having 
too much energy wandering around the classroom, not listening to teachers, um, and generally being a little bit defiant. Yet what I would notice is that the difference between getting these diagnoses are drastic in terms of someone's outcome. And I would notice that most of my clients who were young white boys would get diagnosed with ADHD, which granted them more time on tests, usually more support, and perhaps even a paraprofessional to come and sit with them in the classroom, giving them one-on-one -on -one attention and support. While most of my clients who were young black boys would get diagnosed with ODD, oppositional defiant disorder, which generally has an air of aggressivity around that diagnosis. It's a much heavier diagnosis in terms of its connotation and its stigma and ultimately winds people up in the prison system. There are so many layers to this, not just with diagnoses and assessment and treatment, but also the things that we choose to legitimize as trauma and the things that we don't. To me, most of my clients were experiencing really traumatic circumstances, whether it was a very clear cut event in their life that was traumatic or years and years of living under oppressive systems or having ancestral and historical trauma arise for them and affect their life in ways that are often invisibilized or disregarded but the impact is huge. As a counselor at this time, I felt not only complicit, but to be honest, quite helpless, especially when I would look around at my colleagues and think, is anyone else seeing this? Is anyone else seeing what I'm seeing? I truly felt like I myself was going crazy, especially being part of so many different trainings that we had to do as part of our work. This one training in particular really stands out to me. It was through NAMI, the National Alliance for Mental Illness, I believe is what that organization is called. And this was a mandatory training that all of us had to do together. The general message of this training is that it's never the family's fault when a child gets diagnosed uh, with a mental health concern and that it's just a biomedical brain disease that's usually genetic in nature and a chemical imbalance that quite simply can't be avoided. And if we can look at that and treat the symptoms and medicate and institutionalize if needed, that that's what our job was, was to figure out what the signs are, to console the family, and to make sure that the child got the treatment that they needed. I looked around the room at my colleagues just thinking, I've heard so many stories from my colleagues about all of the different types of trauma that all of our clients were experiencing. And we were essentially being taught in that moment to completely disregard all of those life experiences, disregard the ways in which the context of people's lives can absolutely shape their mental health and just sit there and say, well, it's a brain disease. There's nothing that we can do about it. It was the most infuriating training I was part of and honestly led me to uh, find other people who had already been on this kind of radical mental health path for a long time and co-create an organization together called the Institute for the Development of Human Arts. But that's another story. Now, I want to stick with the idea that I was so enraged by the work that I was doing 
Um, and the way in which it completely deteriorated my own mental health led me to a different kind of work. I was curious about ways that people could use their lived experience. That was the biggest thing that I felt was missing in this system is that not only was no one asking the people or the families themselves what they believed was going on, what they felt they needed, what they wanted out of mental health services, but also that as a clinician in this more hierarchical model, I was here to be supposedly the expert when I didn't feel like I was the expert in someone else's mental health. How could I be? So I got really curious about peer work and found that there was a way you could become certified as a peer specialist, which essentially is a role that's highly undervalued in the mental health system, but still is a role that is crucial. A peer specialist is someone who uses their lived experience to support others through the process, through the journey, and to help them discover their own ways of making meaning out of their experiences. So I became certified and went back to work in the mental health system after I quit that job at Home-Based Crisis and eventually found my way in this program that now unfortunately doesn't exist anymore, but it's based on a model called the Open Dialogue Approach, which was created in Scandinavia. And the model uh, has a lot of research done on it. It was so effective in Scandinavia that we brought it to the United States. A lot of amazing activists and clinicians and peer workers had worked to bring this model into the New York City public mental health system. And I had the privilege of working within this model. It's a network-based model for what gets labeled as first episode of psychosis. And what we do is, again, it's a crisis service. We get the call. Usually someone calls up a mobile crisis team and gets referred to us from there or referred after a visit to the inpatient unit. And we, several of us, multiple colleagues, so it would be me as a peer specialist, a another clinician or a mar marriage and family therapist, and a psychiatrist or a psychologist. And together, we would go visit the family and spend as much time as needed, honestly, sometimes hours at a time, usually once a week, sometimes multiple times a week, depending on what was needed. It was a lot more flexible in this model. And the whole family was invited to come to these meetings or that person's particular social network. And we didn't start off with the assumption that the person who got labeled with psychosis or schizophrenia or whatever the diagnosis was, we didn't start off with the assumption that they were the problem. We started off with the assumption that we might not know what the problem is, but it likely lies within the social, societal, and structural fabric of that person's life. And what we sought to do was not to jump to solutions immediately or come in and tell the family what was needed or to psychoeducate them on anything. We were there to be a support, to help guide some discussions around what was really going on what was really happening behind the scenes within the family context and see how we could be of support, see how we could make meaning together. It was one of the most radical programs that I've ever seen in mental health. And to this day, I still feel like it was such a privilege to be part of because 
it was a really effective model. For me, it was essentially the opposite of what I call the medicate and separate model. It was the antithesis to it. And it's proof that we have alternatives that exist, especially when we bring in people with lived experience, people who may have received diagnoses themselves, people who have struggled themselves to be in the room, to be that level of support with someone to say, hey, I've experienced this too, and I'm not here to tell you what you should do about it. I'm here to listen and figure out how you're making meaning out of this experience. That is one of the most radical things I can think of. However, I know that if you're listening to this, whether you're a mental health professional or not, or a peer worker, or someone who's just trying to support a friend or family member through mental health issues, I know that the biggest question that comes from people is, okay, so what do we do? How do we make it better? How do we navigate the systems that exist? And I've got a couple of thoughts on this. I think the biggest piece is what I just mentioned is to follow the lead of people with lived experience. Allow the people who actually have lived through the suffering, through their pain and through their differences to be the loudest voice in the room when it comes to what they need, what they want, and what kind of support they desire. We have this deeply underlying assumption that if someone is struggling with their mental health, they don't know what's best for themselves. It is true that sometimes when we are in a crisis, we might not be in the headspace to be making major decisions. We might need support with decision-making. But I think the number one myth that we have to really abolish when it comes to mental health is that the person who's struggling with their mental health doesn't have the wherewithal to know what they want and need. That is quite simply not true. And if we allow people the autonomy, the agency, to be at the very least part of discussions around what they desire, that has the potential to change so much. Another piece that I really learned, especially in my job uh, at home-based crisis before I was a peer specialist, one of the things I used to do with clients, it's a simple idea. I'm not going to say that this necessarily changed any part of the system, but it's a very simple thing that we can do if we are in more of a hierarchical role in the system or in our job or even within the family is to give people multiple options, multiple frameworks for understanding mental health. I think if you're listening to this or if you're in this field or if you've been in and around conversations around mental health for long enough, you know that mental health is not just about mental health. There are so many factors, so many things that influence how we think, how we behave and how we feel. And so giving people multiple frameworks to choose from, offering up ways that we can think about mental health that are outside of the mainstream is crucial. One exercise that I did with a client, I'm not really sure where I got this idea, but I had this fun idea with a teenager who was struggling to figure out what it meant to them that they were struggling with depression or they were diagnosed with major depressive disorder. And I wanted to really explore 
what, not just the diagnosis, but what their experience of depression really meant for them. And so I found all these quotes from artists, authors, musicians, um, public figures, activists, people who had lived through and experienced depression. And I compiled some of their stories, their quotes, ways that they've described what had happened to them. And these, all of these narratives about depression were dramatically different. Some of them were very much in line with, I have a chemical imbalance and this is how I deal with it. But others understood depression to be quite different as perhaps a product of their creativity or um, a manifestation of their intensive trauma or something that came out of their place in society or a product of being marginalized. There were so many different narratives around depression and it really kickstarted a wonderful conversation with this client around what that could mean to her. This is a tiny example. And again, I'm not saying that I came in and changed the system or did anything super radical here, but it was just a small way to bring in the idea of polyphony. That there are always multiple ways that we can understand what is going on with us and our mental health. Another piece here is taken from the open dialogue approach that I just described, which is the tenant, the principle of tolerating uncertainty. Oftentimes, especially if you work in the mental health system or have ever worked in the mental health system or hold a role that has a lot of power, we're expected to come in with a ready-made solution, with a treatment plan. And it's true that when we're in crisis, we want an answer. We want a solution. I'm not saying to hold back on offering suggestions, but the tenant of tolerating uncertainty is a really important peace in a crisis experience because crisis can truly be a moment of generativity. It can be a moment where we ask crucial questions, where we open up possibilities, not just in how we understand the crisis, but in what we can do and where we can go from there. Crisis can bring up things that had been swept under the rug for years within families, within society. It can be a moment of a lot of revelation. And if we can tolerate uncertainty for just a moment before we step in to fix something, there's so much beauty that can come from that. Another piece that I have here in terms of what do we do, how can we make some changes here is to really understand the structural roots of mental health concerns. There are so many ways. I think it's more clear now than ever, especially through COVID, through the last few years that we've lived through. There are so many ways that we understand our society, our world at large, having a massive, massive impact on our mental health. And this is more true for people that have been historically marginalized or that have experienced historical and ancestral trauma or oppression for many, many years, decades, lineages. So understanding not just structural issues when it comes to accessing mental health services, that's just the tip of the iceberg. Understanding the structural component, the ways in which 
different types of oppression, different types of identities can really impact the ways in which we experience mental health and the treatment that we receive from mental health and the diagnoses that we receive within the mental health system. And the last piece, again, is just to reiterate, to challenge what expertise means in mental health, really, especially if you hold a position of power, if you work in mental health, or even if you hold a position of power within your family, challenging the idea that we are the experts on someone else's life, health, behavior, feelings, when we can get underneath diagnoses, when we can put those to the side for a moment. I'm not saying that diagnoses are not supportive in some way for some people, but when we can dive below that, we can get so much more information. When we can really ask someone, what does this mean to you? What is your experience like? And not just validate that, but truly advocate for the power that that person has to move forward wherever they are. If we can model that wherever we are, whatever role we're in, that creates huge ripple effects. Challenging the notion of authority, whatever system you're working within is crucial. And please know whether you're an aspiring mental health worker, a new or a very seasoned mental health worker, or whether you just have an interest in this topic for friends and family members or advocacy reasons, know that you are absolutely not alone if you feel isolated or complicit in the system that you work in or around or outside of. I get a lot of questions from mental health workers too that are essentially asking I don't know what to do. Should I quit my job? Should I do something different? Is it more powerful if I work from the inside or the outside? And my answer is always both. We need people that are doing both within communication with each other. We need people, activists, artists, people with lived experience, fighting on the front lines, fighting for change. And we also need people with power within the system that are willing to work in different ways and partner with people that are on the outside. And that's exactly um, what myself and so many of my other colleagues and other radical folks in this space have done there are spaces where you can find people that do see you, that do understand these struggles and are fighting for a similar vision of a total transformation of our mental health system. If this is of particular interest to you, I highly recommend that you check out the Institute for the Development of Human Arts. We are a mental health training institute that focuses on transformative modalities. We train clinicians, psychiatrists, psychologists, but also family members, artists, activists, whatever role you hold in this system. And we bring together people with lived experience as well as people with the professional titles to come together to, with these trainings and teach together. That's the thing that I think makes us particularly unique. We also have events every month and a membership space. It is by donation to become a member so you don't have to worry about access if you just want to meet other people that are thinking and talking about transformative mental health and wanting to do things differently please join the institute it's 
a wonderful place. And even as someone who co-founded the Institute, I found myself through the people that helped make this organization what it is. I always tell people, I feel like I grew up within this organization, um, not just as a healer, as a leader, as someone in mental health, as an activist, but also in the ways that I've come to navigate and understand my own mental health has been shaped by the people that have been doing this work for a long, long time. I am so grateful to you for being here. If you love this discussion and you're interested in mental health activism and transformative mental health, I highly recommend checking out the Institute for the Development of Human Arts. That's idha-nyc.org. At this point, we have members and faculty from all around the world. We have online courses, events, and opportunities for movement building. So if you're not yet a member, you can sign up for that in the link below. As always, I love hearing what you think, so please leave me a review on Apple Podcasts, and I will see you next time.